Our New Testament scripture reading is from Acts chapter 19. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed to Macedonia and to Caia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a season. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius A silversmith, which made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, This Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods, which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, 
and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with a hand and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana? and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen, which are with him, have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. you'd like to turn to our text this Lord's Day, we may turn to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, where it says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. The God-given ability to form syllables and words with our tongue is a most precious gift indeed. Unless we actually slow down and realize how much of our life revolves around our ability to express our thoughts with our tongue, we are likely to continue in a thankless attitude for this undeserved mercy of God. For consider that there are millions around the world who can neither hear nor speak due to various disorders. They must communicate by sign language or by the written word. But dear ones, we who enjoy this gracious capacity have been blessed by God to use it for His glory and for the edification and the profit of others. How are we using this amazing gift? When Moses had been called by God to speak with his mouth a message of deliverance unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to the effect, let my people go, he gave various excuses why he couldn't do what God had commissioned him to do. You remember in Exodus chapter 4, Verse 10. How Moses said, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, 
neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. But the Lord reminds Moses that he, the Lord God Almighty, is the one who gives to all people the ability or the inability to speak. Not just the one, but the other as well. In the following verse, in Exodus 4:11, And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb? Or deaf? Or the seeing? Or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Dear ones, when is the last time you sincerely poured out your heart in gratitude to God for his abundant mercy to use your tongue to express your thoughts and desires to others? Today would be a good time to do so. Dear ones, as the eyes are said to be the mirror of the soul, so is the tongue said to be the interpreter of the soul. If there is godliness or ungodliness in the heart, it will be known and discovered by the tongue. If there be a love of Christ, a love of one's neighbor, a love of holiness, or a love of God's truth in the soul of a man, it will be found upon the tongue. Or likewise, if there be a love of greed, a love of pride, a love of lust, the cherishing of a grudge within, an embracing of retaliation against others, or nursing of a lie, that too the tongue will discover and will make known. For, as the Lord Jesus so truly taught, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Matthew twelve thirty four. If you want to know what is truly important to a person, simply listen to that which he or she talks about most to find out what is really important and significant to that person. The very depths of a man's soul are revealed and interpreted by the man's tongue. What is your tongue, dear ones, telling others about you as to what is most important in your life? The latest movie or song? A hobby or entertainment? Your car or home? It's not wrong to talk about those things, but if that's what our speech is consumed with, preoccupied with, then we have, again, revealed what is truly most important to us. Or the health of our body, rather than the health of our soul. For the kingdom of this world, or the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. For you can rest assured that your speech is definitely telling everyone around you something. One way or another, it is saying something about your soul and about your heart. The only question is, what is it telling them about yourself? For the tongue is the interpreter of the soul. The main points of the sermon this Lord's Day are as follows. First, our tongue may be used to diffuse anger, according to Proverbs 15.1a. And secondly, our tongue may be used to provoke anger, according to Proverbs 15.1b. Let us consider then the first main point. Our tongue may be used to diffuse anger. Again, look with me, if you have your Bibles, to the text where we read, A soft answer turneth away wrath. Dear ones, let us realize that these inspired words from King Solomon are not mere advice or even a prudent suggestion. Death and life hinge upon the use of our tongue. For Solomon likewise makes clear in Proverbs 18.21 that, quote, death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
though a very small member of the body, it may be used to edify or to destroy. It may be used to bless or to curse. Listen to the words of James in chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, to the same effect. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Dear ones, our tongue, as it says in James, may be used to praise God or to curse God, to pour forth refreshing kindness toward our neighbor or venomous anger. It may be used to protect one's character or to assassinate one's character. It may be used to teach what is true or to teach what is false. Death and life are indeed in the very power of the tongue. Solomon knew what he was talking about. Let us therefore listen carefully to the words of wisdom and find the life therein. First line of Proverbs 15.1 tells us that a soft or gentle response will generally have the effect of turning back the anger in others so that anger does an about face rather than an in your face. A gentle response tends more to disarm the aggressor. It tends to suffocate, if you will, the anger so that it cannot breathe out its fiery threats. For it is very difficult, if you've never noticed this, pay attention to this, it's very difficult to fight with someone who doesn't want to fight. Who doesn't want to fight back with the same vengeful anger. It is more difficult to fight with someone who, who does not want to fight than with one who does. In fact, a soft answer is a greater shock to the system than a glass of cold water in the face. Consider some of the biblical examples of soft answers. Subduing the mighty Goliath of anger with a smooth stone of kindness and gentleness. We'll look at a few of those passages in just a moment, but I'm reminded of of a wise baseball coach that uh, I had in my high school years who knew enough about the human psyche. He was not a, uh, I don't believe, as far as I know, a true Christian, believing Christian, but he had enough wisdom. He knew enough about human personality that when we found ourselves in the playoffs playing against a notorious team a team known for their bloodthirstiness, trying to use whatever they could to, to wile their opponents up so as to force their opponents into all types of mistakes by, by their particular anger and attitude, bad attitude that they had. I remember this coach telling us as we prepared in the dugout to go onto the field for that game, he said, Gentlemen, I want you to go out into KWK. Kill them with kindness. Disarm them. Because their whole attempt and their whole reason for acting this way is to throw you off of your game. But if you ignore that, and in fact, not only ignore it, but you, in fact, when they say something to you to get you riled up, to arouse your anger, if you reply with something that is kind, is generous, you'll keep your mind on the game. Now, I 
don't think that his idea was to glorify God by so doing. So therefore, it wasn't a good work. It wasn't intended to glorify God. But nevertheless, I think he understood that particular concept and applied it even to the game. So we look to the scripture. We note that the last time that Jacob had seen Esau, his brother, Esau wanted to kill him for having taken the birthright by deception. But now, some 21 years later, as Jacob approaches nearer and nearer to Esau, he doesn't defend himself with haughty words, but rather appeals to his brother as himself being his servant, being Esau's servant and Esau being his master. Look with me if you have your Bibles or write down the passages that we'll look at now. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 17 and 18, notice how Esau approaches, I'm sorry, how Jacob approaches Esau. And when he commanded the foremost, saying, now, just to bring you up within the context here, Jacob is sending various groups of servants with, with uh, gifts of animals to Esau. And he gives to each of these groups of servants a word to pass on to them. Notice what he says. He says, When Esau my brother meeteth thee, and asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou? And whither goest thou, and whose are these before thee? When thou shalt say, or then thou shalt say, They be thy servant, Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my lord Esau, and behold also he is behind us. He was the one who had the birthright. (laughs) He doesn't say, Go and tell Esau his master Jacob is approaching. But rather, he says, go and tell my master Esau that his servant Jacob is approaching. He tries to diffuse the anger of Esau rather than provoke the anger of Esau. And in verses thir- in verse uh, 4 of chapter 33, note the result. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Isn't that a much better outcome? Reconciliation. Jacob was a peacemaker. That was what he sought, was peace with his brother. He knew what he needed to do in order to reach that particular peace. Furthermore, we see David's response to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 8. You remember again how David was running all over the countryside trying to escape the attack and the assault of Saul who desired to kill him, who was envious and jealous of David, who even sought to use his son, Jonathan, and his daughter, Michal or Michael, to to, uh, bring about David's death and demise. How does David respond to Saul? What words does he use? Does he provoke Saul? Or does he disarm Saul? Look again, 1 Samuel 24, verse 8. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My lord the king, and when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. Get down to verse 11. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Now know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand. And I have not sinned against thee, that thou huntest my soul to take it. Again, look at verse 14. After whom 
is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? See how David looks upon himself, how he appeals to Saul. He calls him, my lord, the king, my father. Who have you come after? I'm just a dead dog, a flea. What is, the, what is the result, again, from this particular response? In verse 16, And it came to pass, when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. A few minutes before, he wanted to kill David. A few minutes afterwards, after that response from David, he leaves him safe and unharmed and goes his way. One last example is that of Abigail. Very godly woman. Abigail who turned away the anger of David against her husband, Nabal. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, the very next chapter, David had been protecting the, the sheep, the uh, herds of Nabal, from the various raiders, the various intruders within the land at that time, he basically pr- provided uh, safety uh, for Nabal, his family, and for uh, all that they had. David found himself and his men in dire straits needing food and simply appealed to Nabal for some food to care for them. Nabal, the foolish man that he was, basically said, you know, who are you that I should give you anything? Uh, this incensed David. He got his men together and was ready to go and slay Nabal and destroy all of his household. He later admits this was sinful vengeance on his part. But what turned this sinful vengeance from David's heart? What did God use as a means to turn that? Abigail. Listen what we see, 1 Samuel 25, 24. Listen to the words of Abigail. And fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. She goes on to relate, and you can read the rest of this amazing uh, uh, speech that Abigail gives at this particular time. But she takes responsibility, in effect, for, for Nabal's sin and appeals to David not to carry out his vengeance, appeals to him that he doesn't have to do this in order because God has called him, prophesies, God has called him to be the king of Israel. Appeals to him to put aside his vengeance and his anger. Look at the response of David, who just, again, a few minutes before, was ready to destroy. Listen to what he says in verses 32 through 34. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me, And blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. For in very deed is the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back from hurting thee. Except thou hadst hasted and come to meet me, surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall." Dear ones, the one who turns away the wrath of others by a gentle response ought not to be viewed here as a weak and cowardly person who simply becomes the doormat upon which everyone wipes their feet. To the contrary, here is one in whom true strength resides. It is easy simply to allow our emotions to rule over us in biting back to the same anger with which we were bitten. It is our sinful nature, in fact, to do so. Where is the strength of character 
or the fruit of the Holy Spirit in that kind of a response. That is simply fulfilling the lust of our flesh. However, when one can harness by God's grace his emotions and offer a gentle, disarming, diffusing answer or response with the intention of diffusing that short-fused bomb that is ready to explode, such a one actually demonstrates a tongue that is under the power, the powerful control of the Holy Spirit of God. You see, that is the grace that is spoken of in Galatians 5.22, temperance or self-control. That is what is to be in control of one's tongue by the Holy Spirit. So as to always, in the various circumstances and situations that arise, to use it to glorify God and to be of profit to our neighbor. A tongue that lashes back like a whip is out of control. But a tongue that is seasoned with grace is in control. What about your tongue, dear ones? Is it out of control? Or is it in control? Also, we note that the sin that prevents us from even desiring, let alone offering a soft answer, is our pride. For it is our pride which has been offended by the way that one has angrily spoken to us that causes us to want to retaliate with a harsh and grievous response rather than with a soft answer. How dare he or she talk to me in that way? Or with those particular words of anger or those painful words, how dare he or she do that? That's pride. Let's call it what it is. That is pride within us. And so our pride, therefore, seeks its pound of flesh. And a war of words, or perhaps even worse, a war of violence, ensues with painful wounds suffered by all who witness it. However, dear ones, if we would but subdue the pride by looking to the death of Jesus Christ where our pride was nailed to the cross and Christ died upon the cross, he not only has forgiven the sin of our pride, but he has given us power through his death to overcome our pride. Not perfectly, but when we see pride raise its ugly head, we have the grace through the power of Jesus Christ's death to overcome that pride in our lives so that it does not continue to manifest itself as if it were not upon a leash, as if it were just roaming free out there and able to do whatever it wants to do in our lives. Jesus has not died, dear ones, in order that we might be free to sin, but that we might be free not to sin and to overcome the sin in our lives. But we not only, dear ones, take off the pride through the means I've just given to you. We replace the pride with the love of Christ which is not easily provoked according to 1 Corinthians 13.5. Love is not easily provoked. And a love which suffers long with the short fuses of others. You see, dear ones, Christ will then begin to tame our tongue and to make it an instrument of healing rather than a weapon of mass destruction. What do you want your tongue to be? An instrument of healing or a weapon of mass destruction? It begins with your desire begins in your heart. What do you want? What do you really plead and earnestly seek for God to do with your tongue? If we give way to a sinful anger when we are reviled, 
We acknowledge we are not, at that point in time, certainly trusting in the Lord, but rather trusting in our own strength and in our own resources to get the job done. We're not looking to Christ. We've taken our eyes off of the Lord. And whenever we do that, we can almost be guaranteed that all of our efforts in the flesh are doomed to failure. They will not accomplish reconciliation. They will not accomplish peace. We're not being a peacemaker at that point. We are being a peace destroyer. Now, I do want to make it clear that there are times in which the tongue may be used to show righteous anger, righteous indignation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, does say, and we affirm, Be ye angry and sin not. Be ye angry and sin not. It is indeed possible for God to use even our anger in a godly manner for His glory and for the good of others. Jesus Christ was righteously angry and indignant in Mark 3.5 at the Pharisees. It specifically says He was angry with them. Not sinfully angry. Righteously angry. However, this is quite different from letting someone have it because they've stomped all over us. A righteous anger does not seek to destroy, but seeks to see repentance and reconciliation as the goal. A righteous anger is not motivated by selfish pride that has been hurt and offended, but is rather motivated by a holy and merciful God that has been offended. A righteous anger loves what God loves and hates what God hates and is righteously angry with his own sins first. A righteous anger is not out of control, but is in control of both words and actions. Dear ones, let us not so easily dismiss our anger as righteous indignation without carefully evaluating our motives, our actions, and our consequences of those actions. Well, let us now move from how the tongue may be used to diffuse anger to how it may be used to provoke anger. Our second main point. Our tongue may be used to provoke anger according to Proverbs chapter 15 and the last part of that verse where it says that is verse 1 but grievous words stir up anger a soft answer turneth away wrath but grievous words stir up anger. The second line in Proverbs 15.1 simply affirms what is the natural response of sinful men. That is to utter grievous or harsh words which only tend to fuel the anger of others all the more. In this case, the bomb in a person is already ticking. You can hear it and you can see it. But rather than acting like a bomb squad and dismantling the bomb, we act more like terrorists in pushing the button that sets the bomb off. And then we wonder, what happened? We scratch our heads in utter amazement when we contributed to setting the bomb off. Yes, the hostile anger or bitter words of another who comes at us may not be excused. It is sin for anyone to act in such a manner. But our provocation in pushing the right buttons, but perhaps even a smile, a sanctimonious smile on our faces, 
also makes us a party to his further anger. As I said, we may not shout, we may not yell, we may not scream, but our calculated response to push buttons that provoke the other party are not a soft or gentle answer in such a case. We're trying to get a response from that person. We may say what we say softly. We may say it gently. That is not a soft or gentle response that is spoken of here in the scripture. If we seek to push someone else's buttons just to see the bomb go off. Let us consider once again some of the biblical examples of how the tongue may sinfully provoke others to anger. The words of Saul, King Saul, provoked Jonathan his son to a fierce anger in 1 Samuel chapter 20 when he sought to to get information from Jonathan so that he might know where David was so that he might again slay David Saul was so upset with Jonathan that he says and we read these words in 1 Samuel 20 30 then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said unto him thou son of the perverse rebellious woman do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion and unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? <clears throat> and that didn't stop with just words. Uh, we read in verse 33, And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. What kind of a response did that have in Jonathan? Verse 34, So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did eat no meat the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. This was how a father provoked a son to anger and wrath. We actually find in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, these words, And ye fathers, and I'm sure this applies to mothers as well, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Don't do that, parents, which you know will push the buttons of your children just to see or get a response from them. Don't try to explode the bomb Try to dismantle and diffuse the bomb. Take not delight that you have, as parents, as spouses, won the battle because the other one exploded, though you were a party to the explosion that went on. That is mere self-righteousness within us when we do so. We must study, dear ones, therefore. We must pray for wisdom. How we can diffuse situations rather than how we can provoke others to wrath and to anger. And what about the words of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the very king who wrote these, this proverb that we're, that we're now studying, a gentle answer turneth away wrath, the grievous words stir up, up anger, well, apparently that wisdom was not passed on to Solomon's son, Rehoboam. For we read in 1 Kings chapter 12, when Rehoboam came to the throne, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel came and pleaded with Rehoboam to make their burden lighter that they had been under such a hardship by way of taxation and labor under Solomon, they pleaded with Rehoboam, make our load lighter, relieve some of the burdens that we are presently under. Rehoboam went and sought the counsel of the aged, of the sage elders who served under his father, Solomon. And they said, do that. Simply go and tell them that I will relieve. I will lift the burden that weighs so heavily upon you. And then 
he went and sought the counsel of his own peers, the young men who were his counselors. And they said, give them a harsh response. Tell them that if they thought it was bad under Solomon, you haven't seen anything yet. What's going to happen under my rule and reign? Then they will know who's boss. Well, he followed the advice of the younger men in 1 Kings chapter 12. Listen to what he says. 1 Kings 12, 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly. And for Father also chastise you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. What was the response of the people? Did they submit? They say, that's the man we want to follow. No, verse 16 So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. A great schism did ensue from these harsh words. But I have some questions now to ask. Are we responsible for the further wrath and anger of others if we should sincerely seek to win them over by our gentle words? They still get angry? Are we responsible for that? No. Absolutely not. For in such a case, either our very silence or the truth which we proclaim and defend may so incite others that they reveal their own hardness of heart and their own obstinacy of will in closing their ears to the truth and in laying into us with words and deeds as they did with Christ. As the Jews did with Stephen. Dear ones, in offering a soft answer to those who are angry, we must never, ever sacrifice the truth. But must speak the truth in love. Not in a selfish anger and not in bitterness of spirit, but speak the truth in love. To give a gentle answer is not to sacrifice or compromise the truth. We cannot ever truly help someone if we only flatter them, if we deceive them, if we lie to them. We cannot truly help them. But we can speak the truth in love. We can seek to give them a truthful message in a gracious manner. And we can ask God to grant us all wisdom and meekness to do so. Another question. What about those who repeatedly take advantage of our gracious responses to their angry attacks? In other words, we are seeking to give a gentle or a soft answer. But someone has figured that out. And they repeatedly take advantage of that and continue to yell and shout and scream so that we can't get anything out. They continue to use that against us. Is there not a time to set a person straight for their own welfare? Absolutely. There will be times when we must be firm with those who, are, who repeatedly offend and will not listen nor learn by a gentle answer. But even on those occasions, we do not use our firmness to retaliate, to avenge ourselves, to get even, but rather to help them, to show them love and mercy, and to edify, not to destroy. That is why we must be in control and seek to be in control of our tongues at all times, being ready for whatever situation may arise, walking in the Spirit, therefore, in our lives, so that we do not respond even when being firm, that we do not respond with vengeance when being firm, but with humility and love. A third question. 
How do we prevent? What are some practical ways in which we can prevent our own harsh response when we are attacked with arrows from the tongue of another which have hit the target in our very hearts? And we are in pain and agony at what has been said to us. We are hurting. What can we do practically? This may sound a little trite and silly, something we'd say to our children. We stop, look, and listen before we respond. Before we say anything, we stop, look, and listen. First of all, stop your mouth and say nothing until the anger of the other has finished erupting. in most ordinary situations. If you, if you absolutely believe in that situation, you're not going to be able to, to get a word in edgewise. There may be the occasion in which you have to say, unless you're willing to stop fuming and fomenting like a volcano here, so that we can talk reasonably about what you're angry about I'm going to hang up the phone and we can talk at a time when you have settled down. Or you might say that to somebody face to face. I'm going to walk out of the room, I'm going to get out of the house or out of the office, wherever it is, until there is an opportunity. But you stop. You don't simply try to to shout them down. That won't accomplish anything. You don't use your hands to put over their mouth and to try to silence them. You don't bring out the duct tape. Ask the Lord to give you a quiet and peaceful heart even in the midst of a battle and a war. Call upon the Lord even to use that trial for His glory and for the good of all those involved. Put your hand not over their mouth first. Put your hand over your own mouth first. For once, dear ones, the words have left your mouth. They're very, very difficult to retrieve. How many times have we uttered in anger something that we have lived to regret? Yes, our words may be forgiven even if they do come out of our mouth. We can go to God. We can sincerely seek His forgiveness. And we can even receive the forgiveness of those we've offended. But it may be that the memory of those is not immediately stricken from the mind and the heart of those we have offended with those awful words. And that's why it's so important to simply stop and put your hand over your mouth in such a situation. You see, God has given us two bars to keep in angry words. Our teeth and our lips. So close your mouth tightly. Seal them both. Count to a hundred if necessary. But stop your own flow of words. It's hard to fight with someone who doesn't want to fight with you. The second part was look. Stop. Now look, look in faith to Jesus Christ who was on the receiving end of many angry words and who did not respond in like manner. Look to Christ who has not repaid you, dear ones, for all your angry words spoken against him and against others, but has mercifully forgiven you and had pity upon you. Look to Christ who freely suffered the eternal anger of God against you in order that He might show you His eternal mercy. Consider that you are no more deserving of Christ's mercy than He is of your mercy and pity who has offended you. And then look inside of yourself and reflect to yourself, who do I think that I am that I do not need this dose of anger for my own sanctification? Does that not stretch you when somebody yells and shouts and screams at you? Does that not cause you to to fall upon the mercy of God to help you respond in a 
godly manner? God intends it for your sanctification. Look inside of yourself and say, I am suffering, if in fact you are suffering for righteousness and truth, say, I am suffering with Christ. I'm no better than Christ. It was done to Christ, my master, it will be done to me, his student. The third point was, listen. Stop, look, now listen. Listen to the word of God and seeking to diffuse the bomb rather than to explode the bomb. A soft answer, this is what the word of God says, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Proverbs 15.1 Proverbs 18.19 A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. If that's true of a brother, how much more true it is of a casual acquaintance or even of an enemy. And then from James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Listen carefully to the words of the one who is angry with you. Even though they are venting, don't turn off unless, again, this looks like a hopeless situation. Don't turn, turn off or tune out as to what they are saying. Listen to see whether there is any truth at all in what they are saying, even if they are saying it in the wrong manner. Even if anger and malicious words may make it difficult to hear what the other person is saying, try to look behind the anger to see what is really bothering them. Try to go to the source, not simply beat them up for the way that they have responded. We may find out that there is some truth mixed in with all that anger that we should hear sins that we should repent of. If that is the case, the first thing out of our mouths should be not a rebuke of their anger. That can come in good time. But rather, a sincere and genuine expression of our sorrow in offending Him. Repentance. And seeking God's forgiveness and their forgiveness. This can only be realized, dear ones, in the life of one who does, in fact, stop, look, and listen. This is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Dear ones, the issue, as we close, the issue is ultimately not the tongue, the physical organ of man, but the heart of man. For there is where the battle is either won or lost, in our minds and in our hearts. If our heart has been humbled by the amazing grace and love of Jesus Christ, which has so abundantly and freely been poured out upon us, we will likewise approach our neighbor, our family member, our friend, our co-worker, with the same humility and love and seeking to help him, whatever he may do and say. It all begins, dear ones, it all begins with an earnest desire, as I said earlier, an earnest desire to make your tongue an instrument of peace, an instrument of healing to the glory of God rather than a weapon of mass destruction. It all begins with that desire. Do you desire that, dear ones? You must if you will call yourself a Christian. You don't have any choice. Christ has called you to do that. If that is your desire, you must realize that self-control is not a grace which you can earn or deserve any more than forgiveness of sins. It is a grace that is freely bestowed upon you through Jesus Christ who has already purchased it through his death and his resurrection. You don't have to cut yourself you don't have to cry and weep. You don't have to crawl on your knees for hundreds of yards to obtain the grace 
of self-control. You need to desire it earnestly and sincerely. You need to believe that Jesus has already purchased that grace for you. You need, therefore, to receive it personally and say, Lord, I believe this grace has been purchased for me. I receive this grace. And you need, by God's grace, to begin to apply it daily in your life, in every situation, beginning the day by asking God to set a watch over your tongue, that God would give you wisdom in how to use your words this day to his glory, and ending the day by reflecting back over how you did use your tongue. Did you simply utter a bunch of foolishness today? Or did you express knowledge? Did you cheer the heart of someone with the intent of helping and assisting them? Or, again, is what comes out of your mouth or mine more like a volcano? It just simply erupts, whether anger, whether foolishness, whatever it is. Remember that this grace is yours in Jesus Christ. It belongs to you as much as your forgiveness of sin. Dear ones, our religion, without this grace, is absolutely worthless and vain. Listen to what James says in James 1.26. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Let us stand together in prayer. Lord our God thou hast challenged us again from thy word we confess we are sinners but O Lord we have abused and misused this glorious gift of speaking we have not used our tongues O Lord as we ought to glorify thee and to edify others but have used our tongues complain, to murmur against thee, to disbelieve thee, yea, even to, cur- to, even to curse thee. Father, forgive us. We have used our tongues, O Lord, to spread gossip, to foment foolishness of things that we think we know. We have used our tongues, O Lord, to assassinate the character of others rather than to seek to protect the good name and reputation of others. Lord, we have used our tongues to deceive and to lie. We've used our tongues to retaliate. Lord, the sins of the tongue are many in our lives, and we do ask, O Father, that Thou would forgive us. O Lord, we thank Thee that this grace of self-control, of temperance, has been purchased by Jesus Christ so that we do not have to ascend into heaven to secure it. We do not have to travel to the ends of the earth to obtain it. But, O Lord, that grace is a promise in the covenant of grace, which is as near to us as our own heart and our own words, our own breath. And so, O Lord our God, by faith, even now, we as thy people do reach out in faith And we do receive the gift of self-control. And Father, we pray that Thou would help us to, to express that and to reflect upon that every day. For it is a truth that will transform and change our lives if we truly believe that. We cannot remain the same if Jesus Christ has indeed purchased this grace for us. Our lives will be different as we implement that grace as we appropriate it by faith. Grant to us, O Lord, the desires of our heart. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.